Corinthians 1 uh, through 11. As I mentioned last uh, Sunday, I'm using this English Standard Version, which is a new version of the scripture that um, purports to be a very literal translation. And so we're um, going to try it out. I read it last year in my quiet time, read through it and uh, liked it generally. So I'll try as we work through Philippians to preach from it. So Philippians chapter 1, the first 11 verses. If you find that, please pray with me. Father, even as I think of this passage in realization of its words, I know the prayer on my own heart that is most certainly that our love uh, grows. And yet that it grows in a particular direction, and that is with knowledge and all discernment. So at this moment, I pray you would grant to us uh, through your word and knowledge of your will that we might become wise in that which is on your heart so that we may be able to approve that which is excellent, all with the goal and the hope that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him. And all of this, Father, and our heart's desire is that we might live for your glory and praise. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with all with uh, for you with you I'm sorry for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God we're still circling in a sense this whole letter Paul to the church in Philippi. By that I mean in the introductory stages to kind of get a handle on it and what's to come. Last week we concentrated our attention on the great promise of God that he will bring to completion that which he's started. And we know that he's started individually in those who are believers this work of salvation that we are saved, justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And that very work that he began, he will continue and he'll bring it to completion. But that's not the only work that Paul refers to, I think, as he writes to them. Because there was a partnership between Paul and these people. And that partnership was a partnership in the gospel. And that this gospel would advance. And so the great promise that this work of the gospel that had begun there in Philippi was going to continue. And God would keep working and bring it to completion at the day of Christ, that is to say, at Christ's return. And my hope then, as I shared last Sunday as we move through this letter, is that, is that at the end of it, our faith will have increased so that each of us will have a great assurance, a certain hope, that in fact the work that God has begun in us will be brought to completion, that we will be saved at the day of Christ. And we needn't stress, worry in that sense about that, but we can have assurance. And not only that, but we can trust that the work that he's begun among us and through us in the context of our church, as we're partners together in the gospel, 
will be brought to completion as well. That is to say that nothing can stop the gospel from going forth. We can read in the newspapers on how horrible the world is and so forth and so on, but we mustn't ever get down and we mustn't ever think that the gospel will fail because it won't. Because God has begun the gospel. He's begun to move it through and he'll bring it to completion. And so that's my hope at the end of this, that our faith will have so increased that we'll live as a as an assured group of people, assured of our own faith, our own salvation, and assured, too, of the triumph of the gospel. So that's that's my hope. But now as we come to the end of this little passage in verses 1 through 11, we take up the rest of Paul's prayer. He began a prayer of thanksgiving with joy concerning them, and now he comes and tells us precisely his petition for them. And it's in verses 9 through 11. Again, let me read them. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want to start with my application. This is what I want you to do. This is what I I want you to take from today at least. What I want you to do is to pray this prayer seems rather silly to study a prayer and not pray it. So, I think it would be best for us to take this prayer and to pray it. Now, I want you to pray it first for yourself. And then, I want you to pray it for our congregation, for our church family. You can pray for anybody you want to, but those would be two, my two uh, uh, requests. That you pray it first for yourself, and then pray it for the people who come to church here. Now, many of us, for a number of years now, have been praying 2 Thessalonians 3.1 for our church, which is that the word of God would spread rapidly and be honored. And we've seen great results from that prayer, not because we're just sort of saying it as a mantra over and over, but because we mean it. It is our heart's desire. It's our heart's desire that the word of God, through our congregation, through our church, would spread rapidly and as it spreads, then, would therefore be honored by people. We've seen that happen. We increasingly see come to faith. We increasingly see people grow in their faith. We can increasingly see people make decisions that are good decisions in line with the truth of the Scripture. And so that, that's a good fulfillment, if you will, a good answer to that prayer. And we continue to pray that. So if you're praying that, don't stop. Just add this to it. It's another 12 seconds. Okay? To pray... First for yourself and then for the congregation. And the reason I say first for yourself is because you need to pray it. We need to pray it with the same attitude with which Paul prayed it. And that is not an attitude that is critical of others nor judgmental of them. And I must confess that there are times when I pray things rather critically. I look at a person and I say, God, will you change them in this direction? Because <laughs> it'll make them much better for me. Uh, there's some characteristics about them that I don't like, so could you tweak them just a bit here and there, and then, you know, they'll be much better. Uh, that's not right to do, but I, 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 I still do it. Uh, it's not working for most of you, by the way. But, um, <laughs> but... Um, but but pray this for yourself because it isn't that we're looking at everybody else and saying, oh, I know what you need. You need to love more. Your love needs to grow. No, 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 no. First, understand that you, me, my love needs to grow and abound. That's the first application here. And then when I 
resonate there, when I understand that, when I'm certain of that, then I'm praying it for you, not critically or judgmentally, but just as sort of one of the bunch, for that's how Paul does it. Paul isn't critical of this church when he prays that. He loves them. In fact, he may have more affection for this particular group of people in this particular church than, than perhaps any other. It's hard to judge, but he has a tremendous affection for them. And he has already acknowledged their great love for him, their partnership in the gospel. This is a church that when Paul was neediest, and Paul was most needy, and no other church came to help him, this church did. Paul never forgot that. And he felt from them tremendous affection. So when he's praying, I want your love to abound, he isn't saying because love doesn't exist here. He isn't saying because love is... Love is there. In fact, love may be more evident and prevalent in the church in Philippi than in any of the other churches to whom Paul's writing, but he writes to them still that their love increases. So it's not critical, it's not judgmental. It's just honest. Well, Paul prays for many of the churches that their love grows, that it abounds, because that's the very gut's essence, if you will, of the Christian, of the Christian life, of a Christian's character of love. So pray it first for yourself, and then, then pray it for, for each of us. You can do what I do and take certain days of the week and take the whole list of people and pray this over them. Or if you're you know, much more efficient, you can just lump it together and say, God, for all the people at Grace EPC, however you wish to do that, but do it sincerely and from your heart. And it isn't that God's going to hear this prayer for our many or few words. Again, it isn't that our, just our repetition of this is going to get it done. It must really come from the heart. And so the question there is, what does this mean? What are we praying when we pray this prayer? First, we might ask, what's Paul's real petition? And then we might ask, what purpose is Paul praying this prayer? And then we might ask, what's the hope or the confidence that he has that it's going to actually be answered? Well, let's sort of start from the bottom up and take a look at the purpose for which Paul is praying. Why is he praying this? What's the end result he's after? And we can see at the very end, he just simply says, to the glory and praise of God. And so God's ultimate purpose for the church at Philippi is they live in such a way that God is glorified and praised. And, and that's right. I mean, that's true. That's, that's the reason for which we were created. That's the reason for which we have been saved. That we might live in such a way that people would see us and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So he's praying that ultimately, that they live in such a way that God is glorified and praised. And so if, if that's your heart's desire, if that's where you want to end up, if that's what you want to be true of your life, then pray this. If that's what you want to be true for our church, then pray this. That you individually, that we collectively live in such a way that God is glorified and praised. That's the end result. He has another sort of medium result here or, or, or intermediary goal. Notice it's in verse 10. Or verse, yeah, the middle of verse 10. He says, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That is to say, if we're going to live in such a way that God is glorified and praised, then it will also be true that we will have lived for the day of Christ. It's an interesting little phrase, for the day of Christ. It means we're living with a view towards meeting Christ. That is, we're to live now, that is in the present, with an eye on what is to come. Now, that should be very normal for us. For instance, students, when you start at the university, 
you need to live your freshman first semester with an eye towards graduation. And if you don't, then you're what we call an eighth year senior. Um, because if you're not living that first semester or second semester in view of the end, then you're not going to be productive. If you begin in a, a company, a corporation at the bottom and you want to be advanced, you need to live those moments with a view towards promotion where you want to be. So you need to be readying yourself even in those days for that which is to come. You, we always live in view of what is to come if we're going to be ready for what is to come. Jesus told parables, for instance, of the ten virgins, you remember, waiting for the bridegroom to come and they had oil for their lamps. Five didn't live with the anticipation of the bridegroom coming. The other five did. They were So they had oil when the bridegroom showed up. Because they were living those moments with a view towards the bridegroom coming. So they were ready. Now Jesus tells the parable of the faithful servant who is at work. Why is he at work? Because his master has left him work. And thus he's working with a view towards his master returning. And so he's ready when his master comes. So Paul says we need to live for the day of Christ. That is with a, a view towards Christ returning. So that when he comes, we'll be ready. And readiness means pure and blameless. And he means pure, that is, with, uh, above reproach. A little word in Greek for pure comes from two words that are translated in English, sun, S-U-N, and judge, as in to evaluate. The notion being that your life should be laid out into the sun to be judged and found pure. He says, live in such a way that you're viewing the coming of Christ so that you're living so that when he comes you'll be pure and blameless. That is, you will not have stumbled on your way and that you also will not have caused anyone else to stumble on their way either. Pure and blameless. And all of this can then be summed in the little expression filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And if you've been around this church or around church long enough, you know there's, there's two aspects of being filled with the righteousness that comes through Christ. There's the righteousness that comes through Christ that's his righteousness that's, that's just poured on us. That's, we, we say, because we like funny words, imputed to us, given to us, covers us. And so we stand pure and blameless, filled with that righteousness. But Paul likely here means, because of the way he uses this expression in other places, and the way it's used in the Bible in other places, filled with the righteousness that is true of our conduct, even. Living righteously. And all this comes through Christ. For instance, this filling of this fruit of righteousness, as in living out the fruit of the Spirit. You know, Paul in Galatians has two wonderful expressions for our lives. One is implied and the other is very overt. In Galatians chapter 4, in verse 19, Paul speaks of his relationship with this particular church and he says this. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's what he wants to see. He wants Christ to be formed in them. And then later in chapter 5, he kind of fleshes that out when he says in verse 22, 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the very character of Christ formed in us. And so when he prays here, that we would live so that God is glorified and praised. He says, if that's going to happen, you're going to have to live for the day of Christ with an eye towards it. And if you live with an eye towards it, you'll be preparing yourself in such a way so that you'll be pure and, and blameless at that day. And if you are pure and blameless at that day, then it means that you will have lived in such a way so as to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, that is love, joy, and peace, and patience, and so forth, that indeed Christ has been formed in you. And that's evident. He said, so that's, that's, that's my prayer. But how do you get there? Well, he says, in order for that all to be true, you have to be able to approve what is excellent. In other words, if you're going to live in this way for the coming of Christ, you have to know what's best to do. You have to know what's best to say. You have to know what's best to think. You have to be able to evaluate and then be able to approve that which really is excellent, that which is best. That's difficult. How do you spend your time on any given day? How do you figure that out? What's the best things for you to be doing? What do you need to do? What do you not need to do, really? Do you think about the lives of your children? What do they do all day? That's an interesting question. I won't even go there. Uh, I know they don't go to school because every time I turn around, they're home. But, um, but what do they do and, and why do they do it? And, and how do you help order their day? What's important for them to do? Is it important for them to play sports, to be in the play, to do their homework, to, to go to school, to go to youth group, to do their Bible study, to pray, to have time with the family? What are the important kinds of things to do? How is it that we spend our money, for instance? What should we use it for? What's the most excellent thing to purchase, to buy, to, to give? To How do we make those kinds of decisions? How can we look over all these vast numbers of things that we can choose to do and choose even to say, should we share our opinion in this particular case? Should I tell that person about what I'm thinking? Should I, should I speak to them about this? How do we make those decisions on, on what we say and how we're to say it? And we need to look over all the alternatives and be able to approve, means to test, to see, to evaluate, to approve what is the very best, what is the excellent to do, what is the excellent to say. What is the most valuable place to spend my money at any one point in time? So Paul is praying that they can live in such a way as to glorify and praise God, knowing that that means they have to live in view of the coming of Christ so that they'll be ready. And if they're ready, it means they'll be pure and blameless at his day. And that means that they will have lived in such a way that the very character of Christ will have been formed in them. So they're filled with the fruit of righteousness that only comes through Christ. But to be able to do that, he knows that they have to be able to approve that which is excellent, that which is best, so they can make all those right choices. Now, how do you do that? Well, here's the guts of his petition. This is what he really asks. Because if this happens, then everything else happens. So he prays that their love would abound more and more. Isn't it amazing that when Paul's thinking about making decisions, approving that which is excellent to do and to say and so forth, 
that he doesn't say, think about what's best for you. He says, love. And you say, that's counterintuitive. If I want to do what's best for me, wouldn't I think about me? And Paul would say, no. It's only counterintuitive because of the sin that still resides. It's very intuitive for God. It just right down the track. This is the very life of Jesus. Jesus approved that which was excellent by seeing what his father desired to be done and knowing what we needed. And thus he came and loved. He came and sacrificed. Jesus approved that which was best, the glory of his father, the salvation of his father's people. Jesus knew and approved what was excellent because he was thinking of his father and us. Not so much, if you will, of his own sacrifice because he came and sacrificed. Because you see, love is always thinking of the well-being of another. Not only that, it's not only thinking of the well-being of another, but it places its joy and its delight in the well-being of the other. In fact, so much does love place its delight and its joy in the well-being of another that it's willing to sacrifice for the well-being of another. And that very sacrifice brings joy. In fact, the greater the love, the greater the joy from the greater sacrifice. If you want to know what's really valuable, if we want to know what's really excellent, we can't think selfishly. It just never happens. When we're thinking selfishly, we can never see what's really best. That's why Paul writes to this church in Philippi, for instance, in chapter 2 and verse 3, and he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Anytime we're rivals, anytime we're prideful, anytime we think we need to get the credit, we'll never be able to see what's really excellent. He said, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do you want to know what's really excellent? Think of the other. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. That's how we learn to approve what is really, really excellent. For you see, that is the way of love. And I don't think a person can read the Bible and miss that's the guts of it that we're to love. Jesus said that the very mark of the Christian, the thing that's going to distinguish us from everybody else, is the fact that we love each other. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you love each other. And that's the very point. Paul writes in another section in Galatians chapter 5, he says, it's not about circumcision or uncircumcision or all of that. It's all about faith working itself out in love. He says, listen, don't owe anything to anybody, in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, except the debt of love. That's the point. Love each other. Think of the well-being of the other. And as you do that, and only as you do that, will you be able to see what's really excellent, what's really best, what's really essential, what's really valuable, anything else, and you'll miss the boat. But it's not only that. It's not only love, but it's love growing in a particular way. He says it's love growing with knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of God. Knowledge of God's will. Knowledge of God's way. Knowledge of what's really important to God. 
It isn't just a sentimental love for others that causes us to be at their disposal, but it's this knowledge of God that tells us what is really valuable in our lives and the lives of others. So we're at his disposal so that we may live for the well-being of others. So he says you have to have a knowledge of God and that you see then brings wisdom. Well, how does that come? Well, first, it comes through a knowledge of God's word. For instance, in Romans in chapter 12, we read this. I appeal, verse 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you need to know God's thoughts. Your mind must be renewed, must be changed to think God's thoughts after him. Your mind doesn't naturally do that. So you need to know his word to be able to do that. And there's no substitute at all for reading and studying the scripture. And there's no way to do that, frankly, other than little by little, passage by passage, verse by verse, continuously on. People who come to me and say, oh yes, I've read the Bible. I always say, when? Five years ago. You've forgotten it. If you haven't forgotten it, it just isn't. I'd rather a person have read a chapter that day than the whole Bible five years ago to be into God's word as he reveals it over and over and over to us. And understand that this is not a, a sprint with God's word. This is a marathon with God's word. It's an over period of time. It's a growing and maturing in it. Don't expect, if you've only been reading the Bible for a couple of years, to have the kind of maturity that's able to approve that which is excellent. You're moving along. Don't be surprised if after 20 years you're still struggling with this. At least if you are surprised, talk to me and we'll share our surprise. And um, we still struggle because God is so huge. And yet we grow in all of this. For the word of God makes wise, the psalmist says, the simple. It's my life verse. That he makes wise the simple. Because if he doesn't, I'm sunk. But you see, over time, in the knowledge of his word, it grows and it brings to us then wisdom. And we begin to think God's thoughts after him. But there's no substitute for this. It just doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens by diligence. It happens by intention. It happens by reading his word. And so Paul is saying, listen, if you want to live to the glory and praise of God, you must live with a view to the coming of Christ so that you be pure and blameless at his coming, filled with the fruit of righteousness. And his very, his very character has been formed in you. But this can only take place if you're able to approve that which is excellent and thus make choices along those lines. And that can only be true when you stop thinking about yourself and start considering the well-being of others. And you can only do that well when you know what's really right and what's really good and what you really must. What you really must know from God and His, and His will. And so when I read Philippians, I'm rather astounded by Paul's view of the world because He's able to do this. It seems like he's been praying this prayer for himself and now it's come to fruition. Because there he is in prison and rather than being discouraged, he's filled with joy. Why? Because he's able to approve what's excellent. 
Because even though he's in prison, what's excellent is the fact that the gospel is progressing. And so more people are coming to faith, even in Caesar's household, so be filled with joy. Why? Because that's more important than his own personal comfort. He would rather be there and seeing the gospel fruitful than be out and not see the gospel fruitful because what's important is not his comfort, but the fruit of the gospel. And even when he's wondering about whether he's going to live or die, the only thing that really matters in him is whether God is glorified by his life or by his death. So he says, all right, if I die, that's gain. If I live, that's profitable because I'll live for your joy in the gospel. And that's good. And then when he realizes all that he had and all that he sacrificed to follow Christ, Paul was a very influential person from a very prominent family with a great education. In all the things that would be attractive in secular society, even in Jewish religious culture, and yet he, he flushed all of that to follow Christ. And he said, but that's all right, because what I have, that is, knowing Christ, is better than what I had, because I know what is really excellent. And in fact, if, even if I have to suffer, and even, and he has a wonderful phrase elsewhere, he says, even if I pour myself out as a drink offering, which quite frankly doesn't sound appealing, it's rather poetic about suffering, but it means difficult suffering to be poured out as a drink offering on a sacrifice, as a sacrifice. He says, even if that's the case, that's all right, because through it, I'm joined with the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, and I know him better. And that's more valuable than my comfort. And so that to be true for us. I don't know about you, but I long for that. I long to be able to see before me the various choices that could be made and under God be able to approve that which is most excellent and then be able to do it. It's always a struggle, I suspect, because I'm not God. And, and it will always be an act of faith. But that is my prayer for me, that I would love and not think of me. So I would know what to be bothered about. I'm sure there's things that bother me that I shouldn't be bothered about. And I'm sure there's things that don't bother me that I should be bothered about. And the only way I'm going to be bothered about the things that bother God is if my love abounds with knowledge and discernment and I become wise in his things so that I really see what's crucial, what's essential, what's necessary, what's important, what really is excellent and then revolve my life around those as opposed to all these things that seem to bother me but are probably just self-centered things that I don't, don't need to be bothered about anyway, in my own personal comfort. And we mustn't miss the very obvious point here and that is that Paul prays this. Thus, we must pray it as well. But you could say, <clears throat> why does Paul really pray this prayer? Because hasn't this already been guaranteed? For instance, in Philippians 1.6, Paul writes that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. Well, isn't that the guarantee that we will live to the praise and glory of God, that we will be found blameless and pure? the day of his coming, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Isn't that what God is beginning in us? 
So isn't that what he's going to, isn't that what he's going to bring to completion? So why pray about this? Isn't this a lack of faith on Paul's part to pray about something that God has already guaranteed is going to happen? And of course the answer is no, it's not a lack of faith. It's an act of faith. Remember, Jesus said, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Now, I don't know what you expect Jesus to say after that little phrase, but here's what he does say. He says, ask whatever you will, and it will be done. I believe what we have happening in Paul is this. That the very word of God was abiding in him. And that very word of God that was abiding in him was this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And that word was abiding in him. And what had brought Paul to was his knees. Because you see, all he could think about and all he could desire was that this really would happen. That that which God has begun would come to completion. That he will be one who could live to the glory and praise of God. That he would be one who would be pure and blameless at the coming of Christ. That he would be one who would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's what was going on in his own soul. Yes, that's going to happen. And he couldn't help but then go to God and say, Oh God, please bring it. Please cause my love to abound more and more. But not just a sentimental love, God. The kind of love that's consistent with with your will, with what you know to be true, so that in all my deliberations, in all my thinking, in all my choosing, in all the different things that I could possibly do, I'll be able to approve that which is really excellent. Because if I can approve that which is really excellent, then... I can live for the day of Christ being found pure and blameless in his sight, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. And my whole life then would not be a life of trivial pursuit, but would be a life that would be lived to the glory and praise of God. Now, if you don't want that, if you don't want to live for the glory and praise of God, if you don't want to be pure and blameless at the coming of Christ, if you don't want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him, And don't pray this. But if you do, and if what really works in you, that very word of God that lives in you, is that word of God that says, he will begun a good work and you will bring it to completion. And you know that the way that he's going to bring it to completion is to enable you to approve that which is excellent. And pray that your love abounds wisely in the things of God, in the knowledge of God and his will. And then you might say, well, if I pray that, will it happen? And the answer is yes. And the answer yes is because what you'll be praying is that Christ would be formed in you. Because, you see, it was our Lord Jesus who loved. And it's our Lord Jesus who, by the Holy Spirit, lives in us. And so when we pray that love would abound in us, what we're praying is that the very character of Christ would grow in us, would abound in us, causing us to think of the well-being of another as opposed to our own and follow the very will of God, which is precisely what Jesus did. The scripture says, Greater love has no man than this, then he give his life for his friend. Jesus did one better. 
He gave his life for his enemy. He loved us while we were yet sinners. And the scripture says that that very one, by the Holy Spirit, lives in us. And thus when we pray, make my love abound, then Jesus hears that and abounds. Remember the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it, to, gave it to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Now what do we think about today as we come to this table? Let me suggest this, that you think about the love of Christ that was in perfect alignment with the will of his Father. And to understand that that very one who loved like that lives within you if you're a follower of Christ. And his love, his character, is being formed in you. And thus you can pray with great confidence. As you do, I remind you that elders are available to pray, so please take advantage of that. Our response to the benediction is to sing together, as we do on Communion Sundays, the doxology. And so please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who was able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And together, let us sing. Praise God from whom.